0: Happy Sabbath. Thank you for indulging me, uh, for sitting down. I had this whole plan of uh, dramatically tossing the crutches away and uh, miraculously being healed, but uh, God is teaching me patience, uh, and so I have a little more time to wear this uh, boot as my Achilles uh, tendon recovers from surgery. Um, Reading God's Word, the Book of Exodus, Chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Good morning, and Hope. Still good morning. Glad to be here, uh, sharing with you this morning. Uh, if, you're visit- if you're visiting with us, Welcome. Uh, We recently started a new uh, sermon series, 10 to Life. We're taking another look at the Ten Commandments to examine how it works, how it works as more than a moral code. We want to learn more about what each commandment tells us about God and what each commandment tells us about God's desire for relationship with us. Uh, Our pastor... Todd began the series two weeks ago. He introduced the metaphor of a marriage proposal with the commandments being the set of expectations implicit in the proposal for a covenant. He focused on the first commandment, no other gods. We learned that God alone is God. God is unique. God loves us completely and wants to be exclusive. Then uh, last week, Todd focused on the second commandment, no graven images. We explored the idea that God is worthy of worship because he is our creator and because he loves us. He makes us his priority and he wants a relationship where we make God a priority. He has shared a spark of his creativity with us and wants to teach us how to use it in context without distracting from him. If you'd like to catch up on the series, you can follow along at watch.adventhope.org to check out videos of previous sermons. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast or download the Advent Hope app, which I've heard described as Tinder for your soul. Of course, whichever way you swipe, we hope you'll meet God. Uh, Let's start off with a word of prayer, then let's get into it. Dear Father, we thank you for all the things you've done for us. Dear God, we thank you for gathering us here today. We invite you here in our midst. We thank you for fellowshipping and worshipping with us. Bless these words that come out of my mouth, and I pray that your will be done. I pray that uh, you touch this group here today, and empower us to touch this city outside these walls. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Harper's Choice Middle School in Columbia, Maryland. The school had a mascot, the Cougars. The entire sixth grade class sat quietly as we waited for a program to begin. Suddenly, Without warning or provocation, a few classmates started, ch- started quietly chanting a name. My name, Tony, Tony. I looked up, confused. I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. I was just sitting there, not seeking attention. Sure, in general, I longed on some level to be upgraded to a higher social cast, but right then, At that moment, all I wanted was anonymity. Others joined in and the chants became louder and ever so slightly more derisive. Just enough of that middle school nasally taunt. Tony, Tony. A teacher tried to intercede to quell the momentum but it was too late. And the entire class was chanting my name loudly And enthusiastically, for no good reason. My cheeks were hot. I was utterly confused. I did not handle it well. I fled from the room, and I could hear the entire class laugh as I ran down the hall. And to this day, I I don't know what triggered it. At what age do people truly experience embarrassment? According to a psychologist quoted by Parenting.com, toddlers as young as two and a half can experience it. That's because around age two and a half, as toddlers become less self-absorbed, they begin to worry about what others think of them. Kids this age are starting to understand social norms and they don't like the way it feels to be noticed or, or singled out because of a mistake or sometimes even for praise. It's disconcerting and they can take embarrassment hard especially because it's such a new emotion. And I'm sure on some level this is true. I'm sure I was embarrassed as a three-year-old if my parents disciplined me in public or if I made a mistake. But for me, embarrassment truly began in middle school. My self-awareness hit a growth spurt. I, I suddenly realized that my clothes weren't as cool as I wanted them to be. My dad was a sharp dresser, but he still dressed me like a little kid. I wasn't going to footlock or department stores. I was stuck going to discount shoe stores of the day. I had those fake Nikes where the swoosh went down. Uh, uh, This pair in the slide was sold by Kinney Shoes. And Kinney also sold these faux Ditas with four stripes instead of three. And I had a pair of those. And... And my dad somehow found these fake Reeboks that had a U.S. flag instead of a British flag. And, and, you know, that was fine in fifth grade, but but sixth grade was a whole different world with higher stakes, puberty and, and girls and deodorant and, and showers after gym class and polo sweaters and pumas with fat laces, Sebagos, swatch watches and Izod Lacoste with the, with the collars popped. I was, I was suddenly self-aware, self-aware of my fashion nakedness. As we establish our individuality, our social identity, our public persona, we become vulnerable in a new way. We become vulnerable to embarrassment, to humiliation. Now, like most adolescents, I slowly but surely gathered my footing, and gained my footing with age, I became more comfortable and and more secure, somewhat. And that said, I'm still guarded, even today, in many situations. And I'm sure most of you have lived with your guard up from time to time as well. I don't care how cool you are, how self-assured you might be. No one wants to be embarrassed. To be rejected or rebuked in private is one kind of hurt but to receive that in public, to be made vulnerable, to be injured, and to consider how that rejection or rebuke is playing in the minds of the audience, that's quite another. And it's with this in mind that I revisit the metaphor that Todd used to start this sermon series. The 10 Commandments gives us insight into God's character, reveals God's expectations that accompany his proposal. The first commandment tells us that God is unique and wants to be exclusive. The second tells us that God has created us, made us a priority, and wants to be our priority. The third commandment tells us, in my opinion, that God is sensitive, he cares about us, and that God gets embarrassed. So we're gonna use the trusty three-point structure to examine this commandment further. I want to start off by acknowledging the notion that God is a public God. And by that, I mean that God is a public persona, a public identity. He has a reputation, a brand. The third commandment focuses on this a little bit. And let's go back to Exodus 20, verse 7. We see that phrase in question, the name of the Lord your God. God's name is the focus of this commandment. Now, there have been lots of books written and sermons given that analyze the various holy nature of the various names of God in Scripture. And psalmists and songwriters have written about El Shaddai, commonly translated as God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh, God is our provider. Uh, there's a little tire repair shop in our neighborhood in Harlem. It's called Jireh Tire. It kind of rhymes but we don't need to go into the Hebrew to understand that a name is used to identify someone or something, to distinguish the name of the Lord. Uh, Before our son Ezra was born, if I heard Beth talking in our apartment and if she wasn't on the phone, I could safely assume she was talking to me. She didn't need to use my name to get my attention. Names aren't required in bilateral relationships so much not until other people are around. So let's take a look at when when people in the Bible started using the name of the Lord. Turn to uh, Genesis 4, uh, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time. What's the context? What's happening? To learn that, we have to look earlier in the book of Genesis. Now, after Adam and Eve fell and separated themselves from God, God gives them this first promise of salvation. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, God says... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now let's move back up to chapter 4, starting with verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. God then punishes Cain and says that he'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. Skipping to verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Skipping ahead to verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And after a few generations generations listed, Uh, shows Cain's descendants, we meet Lamech, Cain's great-great-great-grandson, in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other, Zillah. Starting with verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And the very next verse is back to Adam and Eve, giving birth to Seth, and people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. The chapter describes a point in earth's early history where people have started to move away from God. In fairly quick fashion, Cain and his descendants introduce murder, polygamy, and bragging about murder in verse. Lamech in particular sounds like an outlaw from the old Time Life book series on the Wild West, that guy who killed 48 men, one for snoring too loud. And while the text in Genesis doesn't allow us to be precise regarding when Seth and Enos were born in comparison to Cain's family timeline, one thing is clear. Adam and Eve, despite being out of Eden, are not out in these streets bragging about their separation from God. Eve remembers God's promise about her offspring. You see, Seth isn't just some replacement for Abel for her as a mother. He represents God's affirmation of his plan. And after Seth is born and Seth has a son, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's something interesting here. The Bible doesn't use the term worship, but call upon the name of the Lord. In most translations, the term worship doesn't come up until much later in the book of Genesis. So so I contend that there's a public aspect to calling upon the name of the Lord that isn't inherent to all worship. People in the days of Adam and Eve and Seth and Enos are depicted as calling upon God's name not only to worship, but to distinguish him and by proxy themselves from those who don't follow him to publicly declare their relationship with God. Here's an example from Genesis 12. God has called Abram to leave his country, and God has promised to use Abram to make a great nation. Starting with the end of verse five. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Seshem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved onto the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. As God did with Adam and Eve, God initiates by reaching out to Abram and making him a promise. Abram responds by building an altar, a public structure. He doesn't go into a prayer tent. He publicly acknowledges God by calling on his name. He distinguishes himself from the Canaanites in the land by publicly declaring his relationship with God. He builds an altar that leaves physical evidence of his public declaration behind for all to see. As we can see, God's people respond to his call in public. Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. So what does this tell us about the third commandment? God desires a public relationship where we we call upon his name. Now, this may seem antithetical to our postmodern sensibilities. We live in an increasingly secularized society, and the God of the still small voice is far easier for us and our neighbors to digest than the God of a public relationship. There is a ton of baggage of fear, uncertainty, and doubt associated with the God of the Bible brought on by how people worship that God of the Bible it might feel safer to keep our spiritual relationship status set to it's complicated. Now, as Chris Rock noted, if you've been dating a man for four months and you haven't met any of his friends, you are not his girlfriend. But that doesn't stop us from considering the risks of being seen out in public spending time with God or the risks of introducing God to our friends. Nevertheless, God isn't interested In clandestine affairs, God is a public God. And when we are in relationship with God, we are to be the light of the world. So let's go back and revisit that language of the third commandment again. We focused on the phrase, the Lord's name, and how God's name can be used as an identifier. And how calling on that name is a public declaration of our relationship. Now, let's consider what it might mean to take the Lord's name in vain. It's an odd turn of phrase, and I asked multiple family members and friends to opine as to what it meant. And I received multiple interpretations. There's the basic version, the one that I was taught as a kid, the one that almost no one believes is the full answer, namely that we aren't to use the words God, Lord, or Jesus Christ flippantly as an an expletive or or exclamation. Of course, there's a debate as to whether vegetarian versions like gosh or golly or cheese and rice are kosher or not. I picked up a bad habit, personally, of cursing a little bit in college. I wasn't a sailor, but it was certainly more than I had cursed before, which was was never. And so when I went to grad school, I felt convicted to stop. So when I would play basketball and I'd make a bad play, instead of cursing, I'd yell out, Flip! That was my veggie expletive. And I must have made more than my fair share of bad plays because Flip ended up being my nickname on the court for about a year or two. Still, either way, even during my brief tenure as a potty mouth, I was still culturally predisposed towards not taking the Lord's name in vain in that way. But I'm inclined to agree with the majority of people that I spoke with who believe that this commandment goes beyond that. Now I grouped the feedback that I received into two groups that seem diametrically opposed at first. Those who believe that taking the Lord's name in vain constitutes a violation of the reverence God is due. And those who believe that taking the Lord's name in vain constitutes a violation of the intimacy God deserves. I think it's both. I believe that God desires both awe and intimacy. Now, there might be a perceived tension between the two, and I admit I'm still struggling with unpacking this concept. We have experience treating vertical relationships with managers or subordinates and mentors and mentees older and younger generations differently than we treat relationships with our peers. So how do we interact with a God who is so vastly superior to us and simultaneously, potentially closer to us than any other relationship. We should be in awe of God. That makes sense. He is awesome. There was thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists and all that. 2 Samuel 7, verse 22. There was none like you, and there was no God except you, according to everything that we have heard with our ears. And who was like your people, like Israel, a single nation in the land, whom God went to redeem as a people for himself, making a name for himself by doing great and awesome things for your land, before your people who you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And on verse 24, you established your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, Lord, became their God. God performs wonderful, redemptive work. He makes himself a name doing great and awesome things, namely redeeming us. The Bible is full of acknowledgments of just how awesome God is. But at the same time, God invites us to be intimately familiar with him as well as he dwells in us. The Holy Spirit guides us, impresses upon us, shapes and molds us. Psalms 51, verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Our relationship with God calls for both awe and intimacy. If we approach God with a form of awe, but with no intimacy, then there's no relationship. We could acknowledge God's greatness and power without knowing who he is. And in that context, we can ask for things we don't need. We can abuse his generosity like if Jimmy Olsen kept beeping his Superman signal watch, despite not being in danger. We can invoke God's name or claim allegiance without any basis or sincerity. We can take his name in vain. Jesus had this to say in Matthew, chapter 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Without intimacy, we miss out on God's transforming influence in our lives. We miss the opportunity to be groomed by God for heaven. Conversely, if we have a form of intimacy without awe, we lose sight of God's power and authority. We portray God as common, and without an appreciation of God's holiness and our broken nature in comparison, we may lack the self-awareness to respond to God's offer to reconcile and build a relationship. We can lose track of the stakes of our very real need for God in our lives as a saving influence. In Luke 5, verse 24, Jesus speaks to a synagogue in Nazareth and he comments, truly, I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Those who were familiar with Jesus were less receptive of his messianic ministry. Conversely, in our efforts to be familiar, we can miss out as well. We can take his name in vain. So we've talked a little bit about how God is a public God who desires a public relationship with us. And we've talked a bit about how the third commandment reveals that God wants a relationship with us where we provide both awe and intimacy. Now, we've talked about what this means for us, but what does this mean for God? What does God's desire for a public relationship that combines awe and intimacy tell us about his character? By calling us into a public relationship, God knowingly risks embarrassment. That's not an emotion we often ascribe to God but this is the same God who is jealous as acknowledged just last week in the text of the second commandment. This is the same God who expresses joy and delight and anger and sadness throughout the Bible. In his most recent album, Jay-Z talks about his marital problems with his wife, Beyonce, Knowles, a popular R&B singer. Uh, He talks about his emotional distance and his mistakes. In the song 444, he describes the beginning of their relationship this way. I said, don't embarrass me instead of be mine. That was my proposal for going steady. He's no hopeless romantic here. Uh, Quite the opposite. He he acknowledges that he tried to hedge his bets, protect his image instead of a full-fledged open commitment and pursuit. Jay-Z is cooler than most, but in spite of that, Or perhaps because of that, he tiptoes into this relationship guarded. He's more scared of hurting his rep than of being hurt. And it's no surprise then that elsewhere in the song, he confesses the ways that he ended up hurting her. The Bible provides multiple examples of people mocking God. Often they're enemy kings talking slick about God. Let's go to 2 Kings 19. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria with a name that sounds like he's not above acting greedy at a cookout, had this to say to the people of Judah during King Hezekiah's reign. In verse 10, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. The Lord responds through his prophet Isaiah in verse 22, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One in Israel? And later in verse 32, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up, cast up a siege mound against it. And to wrap up the story, you can skip down to verse 35. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. So that was the end of that. A lot of trash talk that amounted to not much of a fight. That sounds familiar to boxing fans. By the way, I, I, I kind of like the fact that Snatcher didn't just go back to Nineveh. He went there to live, as if he never came back, he was, he was done. In any event, when the Bible describes enemy peoples attacking to, attempting to mock God, God calls them out for who they are, fools who would dare to mock the living God. In contrast, note how often God uses the metaphor of marital infidelity to describe when his people break their covenant with him. For example, in Ezekiel 16, God gives Ezekiel a message using an extended parable comparing wayward Israel to an unfaithful bride. I admit it's an awkward courtship to our modern ears given the story's timeline and the apparent age difference between the couple. That said, let's skip down to verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, Because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. We often characterize passages like these as depictions of God's righteous anger and indignation. But note that God doesn't use the metaphor of a secret affair. The metaphorical spouse isn't having a secret dalliance with the tent repair guy or the camel salesman. The spouse is out in the streets in every town square. This is a public transgression. Given that God is a public God who desires a public relationship, the breach of that relationship is also public. It's no surprise, then, that God's reaction is more emotionally charged than with Shnacharib and his ilk. God uses the same narrative construct to powerful effect, Throughout the book of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is not the kind of match that dating sites would feature in their user testimonials. God asks Hosea to serve as a living parable by marrying a woman who he knows to be unfaithful. And because his wife is an object lesson, Hosea knows that knowledge of his wife's infidelity will spread far and wide. Interestingly enough, I've long felt sorry for Hosea whenever I read this account, yet I rarely acknowledge the pain God feels, as symbolized by Hosea's discomfort. God's embarrassment is as predictable as Hosea's given God's omniscience yet God proceeds to reach out to Israel and to us anyway. That's because God loves us enough to allow himself to be played for a fool. Our society has become increasingly informal. John F. Kennedy allegedly didn't bother to wear a fedora as part of his work attire, and that more or less signaled the end of the hat for the working man. Casual Fridays marked the end of suits, every day for many, and Silicon Valley culture may eventually usher in the end of business casual. Congress was in the news recently for still maintaining a dress code that forbade women to wear sleeveless tops or dresses. I was told by someone in early service that that may be coming to an end. But before we get on our high horse, some of our sibling churches, both in and outside the Adventist faith tradition, still have adopted similar practices. That said, our Churches are still far less formal than they used to be. My grandfather worked as a pastor throughout the Caribbean, and I doubt he ever preached a sermon wearing what I'm wearing today and including pop culture references of the day the way I am. But regardless of how our society redraws the lines of modesty and appropriateness and formality, God doesn't change. And in our interactions with God, we will inevitably struggle with taking our relationship with God public, and with maintaining both awe and intimacy in that relationship. We may struggle to be open about our relationship and mistake uncertainty and over of others' opinions with a desire for privacy. We may grow from wide-eyed, newborn Christians perpetually amazed by God's grace and gradually morph into cynical Christian adolescents who feel like we've seen it all and are more likely to treat God as less than special. Or we may get distracted by life and lose our connection. And as we get distant, we may still intellectually acknowledge his authority, but we may struggle to implement it as we drift further away. And make no mistake, these public microaggressions. Micro-rejections hurt and embarrass God. But God loves us so much, no matter how foolish we make him appear to be, that he reaches out to us anyway. Looking back at that running metaphor of the unfaithful bride in Ezekiel 16, let's see how the account ends. Starting with verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And in verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all, that you have done, declares the Lord God. In spite of all the bride's embarrassing public rejections of the groom, God as the groom remembers the initial promises made to that bride and honors them. God goes further by atoning for all that the bride has done. This running metaphor points us to Jesus. God's plan for redeeming us, for reconciling us, and for drawing back into a public relationship of awe and intimacy is based on Jesus' atoning sacrifice. God tells us, You may embarrass me, but I still want you to be mine. Amen.